There's this beautiful poem. It's in the book of Isaiah. The city of Jerusalem has just been destroyed by Babylon, a great kingdom in the north. And all of these Jewish people, they've been sent away into exile, but a few remained in the city. And they're left wondering, what just happened? Has our God abandoned us? Right, because Jerusalem was supposed to be the city where God would reign over the world to bring peace and blessing to everyone. Now, Isaiah had been saying that Jerusalem's destruction was a mess of Israel's own making. They had turned away from their God, become corrupt, and so their city and their temple were destroyed. Yeah, everything seems lost. But the poem goes on. There's a watchman on the city walls. And far out on the hills, we see a messenger. And he's running towards the city. He's running and he's shouting, good news. And Isaiah says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Beautiful feet? Yes. The feet are beautiful because they're carrying a beautiful message. What's the message? That despite Jerusalem's destruction, Israel's God still reigns as king, and that God himself is going to one day return to this city, take up his throne, and bring peace. And the watchmen sing for joy because of the good news that their God still reigns. Now in the New Testament, we find this same phrase, the good news. It's the Greek word euangelion, and it's also sometimes translated with the word gospel. So when Christians say, do you believe the gospel? They mean, do you believe the news? But not just any news. In the Bible, this phrase is always about the announcement of the reign of a new king. And in the New Testament, the Gospels use this phrase to summarize all of Jesus' teachings. They say that he went about proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. So Jesus saw himself as the messenger bringing the news that God reigns. Yes, but the way that he described God's reign, it surprised everybody. I mean, think, a powerful, successful kingdom. It needs to be strong, able to impose its will, able to defeat its enemies. But Jesus said the greatest person in God's kingdom was the weakest, the one who loves and who serves the poor. And he said that you live under God's reign when you respond to evil by loving your enemies and forgiving them and seeking peace. This is an upside-down kingdom. Now, Jesus also said that this kingdom was arriving with him. Yeah, so for example, there's this really interesting story where there's a high-ranking Roman officer, and he comes to Jesus begging him to heal his servant. And he even calls Jesus his Lord, acknowledging that Jesus is his authority. Jesus praises this man for recognizing what no one else yet had, that not only was Jesus announcing God's kingdom, he was the king. And so the word gets out that this Jewish man from Galilee is talking and acting like he's the king of Israel. He's appointing 12 disciples, which are an image of Israel's 12 tribes. He's healing people forgiving people their sins. And all of this so threatened Israel's leaders that they finally decide to have him killed. And Jesus let them. Yeah, which is a weird thing to do if you're trying to become king. That's right. But for Jesus, this is what had to happen. Jesus saw the sin and the devastation of his people Israel as just one small part of the entire human condition. How all humanity has rebelled against God, resulting in the tragedy and devastation of our whole world. So how is God going to bring his reign over such a world? Jesus believed it would be through an act of sacrificial love for his enemies. 
This is why in the Gospels, Jesus' crucifixion is depicted as his enthronement as the king of the Jews. Yeah, he receives a crown. He also receives a robe. He's exalted up, not onto a throne, but onto the cross. How beautiful are the feet that bring good news. And the good news now is that Jesus has defeated death and that he reigns as king, that he's dealt with our sin and corruption himself and that he's conquered it with his life and with his love. And then Jesus sends his followers to go out and keep announcing this good news of the upside down kingdom and to invite everyone to give their allegiance to him, the king who defeated death with his love. Well, it is good, so good to be together today. Happy Easter to every single one of you. Uh, For those of you that are new with us, we are pleased and so happy that you're able to come and join us, especially if you were invited by somebody to come and be uh, with us. It's such a joy to be able to host you as part of this family that is Church of the City. Uh, My name is Matt, and I serve our church family in the area of teaching and vision. And so on Sundays when we gather, uh, I do the majority of the teaching, and it's an absolute honor and privilege to be able to do that. As some of you know, I was on vacation. I was away last week, and uh, it was really nice to be off. Uh, Many of us, I'm sure, enjoy and appreciate some time off as as part of vacation. And I did the very, like, uh, Christian dorky thing and actually went to another service last Sunday. Maybe some of you, when you're on your vacation, you're like, I'm just, I'm not going to go at all. But for me, it's actually a really nice thing when I can just go and attend somewhere because when I'm here, right, I'm working. And so I just, I had the opportunity to go and do that. Now, this was good for me in a couple of different ways. And one of the ways was just like realizing how strange it is, some of the things that we do as Christians as part of a service. Like it's it's very countercultural that we would all like be singing a song together and, uh, you know, doing responsive readings and and all of these different things. And so it was a real eye opener. So if you're here and you don't usually do this thing, I just want to say like, well done. Uh, And you've been very brave uh, to be able to make it thus far with us today. And and hopefully this feels a little bit more normal if you're used to some sort of a lecture, uh, but hopefully this lecture will leave you with some implications that will be part of maybe a life change for you or just kind of thinking about some new questions, answering them in completely different ways. So we're so happy to have you here and a happy Easter to every single one of you. Well, um, something has happened in our lives and it's, uh, it's probably that point that every parent, so it is a bit of a parenting analogy, uh, dreads. And it's when your child either discovers or begins to lie. And uh, some of us are like, oh, that day, that was hilarious, or oh, that was awful. My child is now a, a little liar. And uh, we have become parents of a, a couple of them. But we have realized that, that this is like this crazy thing, right? And, and every time you have this sort of experience with your child, you know, it could be, so did you brush your teeth? Yep. Uh, let me, let me, the the toothbrush is still dry. I don't think you actually did it. Or, uh, you know, one of the more fun ones, like, did you wipe? Uh, yeah, I did. It's like, ah, you don't usually, so you probably didn't. So, you know, you start to realize all these different things. Now, what you don't necessarily think about is that when, when your child lies to you, you have an internal uh, ability to kind of figure out, do I trust the child or not? 
right? It, what does the child have to gain from this lie? Uh, is the child maybe absurd? Is the, is the child making things up because they're crazy? Like they're not thinking clearly. Like what are the different ways? And so you kind of decide. It's, it's like if somebody were to come to you and tell you a story and you listen to the story and you're like, that is like an absurd story. Where in the world did that story come from? You are either lying or you're crazy because that's just absolutely absurd. Now, to apply this, the, the Christian story of what Jesus has done in that Jesus died on the cross and then came back to life is one of these stories that we got to give our heads a little bit of a shake of about is that sounds like an absurd story. And it sounds like a bit of a lie, right? If, if someone were to, were to come up to you today and say, I um, came back to life, you would Okay, <laughs> crazy, loony. Like, no, you probably didn't, or you're just lying to me. And what do you have to gain from lying to me? Now, the interesting thing about the Christian story of Jesus coming back to life is you need to ask these questions. Like, what would Jesus have had to gain? What if the followers of Jesus would have had to gain from the story of him actually coming back to life? Uh, it's why one of my favorite children's books is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Some of us know this. And in this story, the two characters, Peter and Susan, have an opportunity to respond to a story that their sister has told them about a land called Narnia. And they have the, the opportunity to decide, is my sister telling the truth? Is my sister absurd? Or is she, in fact, a liar? And the professor that they live with helps them come to the terms with the fact that maybe your sister is not, in fact, lying. Like, why would she lie? Is she a liar? Does she lie often? It's like, well, no, she doesn't lie often. Is, is she absurd? Is she crazy? I've spoken to her recently. She doesn't seem so absurd. She doesn't seem so crazy. Well, no, she's not very crazy. Well, then why don't you consider believing her? And we all do this in, in our lives. We, we listen to people's stories. We, we listen to facts. We, we look in our social media feeds. We see people's stories on Instagram. And we're sort of like, do I believe them that this has actually happened or is this all fabricated? Should I ought to believe them? Now, when it comes to the resurrection story of Jesus, a dead man coming back to life, you've got to ask the same question. Is this a believable story? What does the tellers of this story have to gain from the fact that they told us about it? And when you actually begin looking at the evidence, the circumstantial evidence, the historical evidence, you begin to see that the story of the resurrection of Jesus actually has more credit than what many people believe that it does. Tim Keller, in his book, The Problem and the Reason for God, says this, the reason for God, it is not enough for the skeptic to simply dismiss the Christian teaching about the resurrection of Jesus by saying, it just couldn't have happened. He or she must face and answer all of these historical questions. Why did Christianity emerge so rapidly with such power? No other band of messianic followers in that era concluded that their leader was raised from the dead. Why did this particular group do so? No group of Jews ever worshipped a human being as God. What then led what led them to do it in the case of Jesus? Jews did not believe in divine men or individual resurrections. What changed their worldview literally overnight? Or how do you account for the hundreds of eyewitnesses to the resurrection who lived on for decades and publicly maintained their testimony, eventually giving their lives for their beliefs? Now you listen to some of these things like, well, okay, 
I've never considered some of these questions before. So maybe the resurrection of Jesus, a dead man coming back to life, actually might have a little bit more credit. It might have a bit more of a foundation than I initially thought it might. But maybe you're still left with the question, but what does that got to do with me today? And maybe you're someone who is a follower of Jesus and, and you know, you, you, you celebrate the fact of the resurrection. But what does the resurrection actually mean for my life today? How does it change the way that I live? I mean, we've sung these songs that declared a few truths, but how does it actually change the way that I live? And so the question I want us to answer today is, how does the resurrection of Jesus change the way that you and I live today? Because this is also one of the ways that you can test whether or not a faith position or a worldview is valid or worthwhile considering around, like, how does it actually change the way that I live in this world at this time, in this particular place, with my friends and with my family? Like, what is the difference that it makes? Now, as many of us are are aware, because you've been uh, with us here at Church of the City on Sundays, we've been studying the book of Hebrews, which is a sermon. It's a a sermon. It was, uh, some think it might be a letter, but it doesn't read as much like a letter. It's uh, sort of a sermon that's been written down and then delivered to a group of people. And these group of people were Jewish Christians. These are people that converted from Judaism to Christianity. And in this letter, or in this uh, sermon that this writer, this author has given, he's laying out evidence for why we ought to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, why we ought to take Jesus seriously, and why what Jesus did is, is a meaningful thing. I mean, it's a question that is, I think, a very important one for all of us to answer as well, as we're going to today. But here in the section, in the passage today, you can find it if you have your Bibles, in Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 39, I believe the author gives us four reasons uh, in why and how the resurrection of Jesus, uh, if that did in fact happen, how it ought to change the way that we live with one another today and, and how you interact with the world and how you interact with God himself. So if you have your Bibles, you can go there, Hebrews 10. Uh, we're going to be in 19 to 39. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to simply pick out some verses that I believe tell us the truths that I hope will make some sense to us today. Now, before I do that, let me just say a word of prayer, and uh, why don't we ask the Holy Spirit uh, to do a work in our hearts so that we might be changed today. So God, I I thank you that we have this opportunity to gather in this beautiful space at War Memorial Hall uh, to celebrate Easter, and I thank you for the opportunity that we have to also study your word. God, there are Christians all across this world that do not have this freedom, and so I thank you for this freedom that we have today. Lord, as we listen and as we are challenged, maybe in our viewpoints, God, I pray that you would give us new things to consider, new things to um, go home with. So Jesus, thank you for your resurrection. I believe it. I believe that a dead man came back to life. So thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. So the question, how does the resurrection of Jesus change the way that you and I live today? Reason number one, and you can find this in verses 19 to 23, that I believe the resurrection of Jesus changes our lives today, is that we can have confidence with God in relationship. We can have confidence with God in a relationship. Now, notice what it says there, confidence with God. Right? Many people are, are searching for uh, a way to be confident with God. All right? What I'm saying here is you can not only, through the resurrection of Jesus, find confidence with God, you can find confidence with God and have a relationship with him. 
This is what we read in verses 19 and then 22 and 23. He writes, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast in the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The point that this author is trying to make is that through Jesus' life, through his death and resurrection, those who have faith in what he has done can have confidence to know that they are actually good with God. They're good with him, and God is good with them. Now, uh, let me help us think through this a little bit. Uh, Can you ever be 100% sure that you are confident in a relationship with somebody else, or even the assurance that that relationship will actually last forever? As I began to think about this question, I thought about some of my high school relationships, right? Some of us maybe can think back to some of our high school relationships. Uh, some of us maybe have some connection with the people that we were in high school with. Uh, for me, I, I have very little, if, if any, connection with some of those high school relationships. Yet at the time, I put a ton of energy and attention into those relationships. I was fortunate this past summer actually at a wedding for one of my best friends in high school. When I think about those relationships, those relationships have, have somewhat come to a close. I, didn't, I never really had the assurance maybe that they would last forever. Think about some of my university friendships that I had. Uh, and some of those are still existing, but by and large, we, we sort of changed places and we, we moved on. And so in many ways, those relationships are different than, than they once were as well. Uh, or how about a marriage relationship? You know, a marriage relationship is something that you can probably find some confidence in, but how can you be assured that they're going to live as long as you are and that you'll leave the planet at the same time? Or how about when you're actually in the relationship, can you always have maybe 100% confidence that we're like good with each other? Uh, like generally, maybe like you've said, Hey, I'm not going anywhere. You're not going anywhere. Great. Okay. We've got that. But what about the day-to-day decisions that you make that, you know, maybe your partner's not going to be stoked about. And this can be like as simple as, Oh shoot, I said I was going to do the dishes and I haven't done the dishes and they're going to come home. And then I'm gonna have to live with like, Oh shoot, I'm not feeling very confident in my relationship today because I didn't do the dishes it was totally selfish, but I didn't do the dishes. And now I'm, you know, I'm sort of offline with this person or, you know, it can be, you know, a little bit more significant, uh, related to, you you know, I've thought about somebody else who's not the one that I've committed my life to in a way that I maybe shouldn't have thought of that other person. Maybe it was in a sexual way. And, and so now I'm like dealing with some of the guilt of like, do I really have confidence with my partner? Because now I've like sort of like gone beyond the confines of what I committed to them. I've sort of in my mind told them that, you know, there's different things. And you sort of like, you know, you can figure out this like mental picture of like, can I have 100% confidence in, in this relationship? And what we read and what we learn about in the Bible is that because of what Jesus has done, that, that Jesus has done something that, that you could not do. And what I mean by that is that Jesus has represented you before a perfect and holy God. And he's, what he's done is that he's, he's lived, he lived a perfect life on the earth to be a substitute for your life so that you can stand before a perfect and holy God and that you can stand there and, and be declared innocent because Jesus has traded places with you. It's an amazing thing. It, it's, it's full confidence. It's full assurance that you can have a relationship with God and that you're good with him and he's good with you. Because he doesn't see what you've done. He sees what Christ has done. His son has done on your behalf. It's an amazing thing. It's, it's an experience that I would say you can't actually have with another human being. 
the level of this confidence, this level of assurance. You know, I talk with a lot of people, and for many people, they struggle with this concept, that, that God would be okay with me, that I can be confident with God, that I can be assured of my relationship with him, that God isn't, isn't lack, lack of being happy with me when I do bad things. But what we learn in the good news of Jesus is that he has covered everything bad that you've done, everything that you've thought that you wish you hadn't thought, so that you can be in the presence of a perfect, holy, unique God, and that you can remain in his presence in a confident way. Never needing to worry even about the things that come across your conscience, as we've learned at other places, that your conscience is clear before God because of what Jesus has done for you. It's an amazing thing. So the, the first way that the resurrection of Jesus changes the ways that we live today is that we can have confidence with God in a relationship. And, and as we've been talking about at Church of the City, this is how Christianity is very different than every other world religion that there is. Because every other world religion is, is trying to put together ways in which you can be and have confidence with God in relationship. And it all depends on what you do. Christianity is different in that it says it doesn't depend on what you have done. Your relationship with God depends on what Jesus has done for you. You couldn't get yourself to God. You'll never be good enough for that. So let Jesus stand in your place and be enough for you. And simply trust and lean into what Jesus has done in his life, death, and resurrection. So therefore, you can be in a confident relationship with God. Now, as some of you know, I've been doing counseling, right? I've been fairly honest with you about that. I hope that's been helpful. It's been helpful for me. And one of the things that I'm learning in counseling is that uh, we have a left brain, which is our cognitive side, and then we have a right brain, which is our feeling side. And sometimes when we do these sermon things, it's all cognition, and then it's like, okay, see you later, which doesn't engage your heart. It doesn't leave room for that. I mean, we sort of say, we're going to sing afterwards, engage your heart. But in this moment, I just want you to take it for a second, okay? And I want you to take your right hand, okay? I want you to put your right hand over your chest and I want you to say, I am clean. Go ahead. All right, close your eyes and say it. Don't look at me. Say it to God. I am clean. I want you to say, I am enough because of Jesus. You can say, I am a loved child of God. That's good. Now, some of you are like, you said it, you're like, I don't believe it. But you say things about yourself that you shouldn't ought to believe every day too. But this is something that if the Christian faith is true, you can have confidence in saying that when you trust in Jesus, that I am clean. I am enough because of Jesus. I am a loved child of God. You can have confidence with God in a relationship. That's great. Because he'll never abandon you. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. You don't have to fear that in a relationship with him because of what he's done. That's amazing. Secondly, how the resurrection of Jesus changes our lives today is that we can have meaningful relationships with one another. Now, this is really cool because not only does the resurrection of Jesus affect our vertical relationship between ourselves and a perfect God, but it also affects our horizontal relationships with one another. Notice what our author writes in Hebrews 10, verses 24 to 25. And let us consider how to stir up 
one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And this is really, really cool. Notice what he first says. Consider how we ought to spur one another on toward loving good deeds. What's he saying? He's saying study and implement schemes that motivate each other in community. He's saying we're not individualists. We are community dwellers. He says consider one another. Recognize the impact of your actions upon other people and stir one another up. You know, pat each other on the back, slap each other on the butt, help each other keep going, stir one another up, encourage each other. This is like really amazing, right? That he would just take the time in this part of the letter to say, you ought to encourage each other, stir one another up. He then says, do not give up meeting together as has been the habit of some people. Now, <laughs> this is in stark contrast, just think about this, to the non-committal culture in which we live. I know what he's saying. Do not neglect meeting together. Do not stop getting together as some people are in the habit of doing. Have you ever like asked somebody to hang out and uh, you knew that they were waiting for a better option? I mean, and, and, and you're trying so hard not to be offended, right? And they're trying so hard not to offend you. But it's like, hey, you know, what do you know? You know, I think a classic one is New Year's, right? Like everyone wants to have the most like absurd, like the best New Year's ever. And so you're trying to put together some plans, like let's like do New Year's together. And they're really non-committal about it because they're like, well, you're pretty cool, but like there might be a better option coming for me. And and so generally, like it's just like kind of if you think about that, like think about what he's saying here. Do not neglect meeting together, stir one another up. I mean, this is a stark contrast to the culture in which we live. Seeing cheer each other on and encourage each other. Now, what's interesting here, too, is that he's not just talking about relationships that are easy to be in, right? Like, if, if I meet somebody and they have a lot of similarities or they have a lot of things in common with, with me, it's pretty easy to hang out with them, right? It's, it's like, oh, well, you like this, I like this. Oh, we'll watch football together, you know, for me. Like, that's the sort of thing. It's like, this is easy. But when you think about it, that relationship is somewhat selfish, because this person is meeting some of the needs that I want met. I want somebody to watch football with me. Great, you can do it. But think about some of those relationships in which you have a lot of commonalities with the person. And then they started to get a little bit weird on you. Right? They started like, they, they sort of like, you know, allowed themselves a little bit to be themselves more with you. And then you're like, okay, I thought you were cool. And now you're totally not cool. So, you know, I'm just going to like try to get out of this relationship as quickly as I can. I think this is what the author is speaking about here. He says, do not stop meeting together. Do not stop your commitments to one another. Now, why would he say that? Well, I think he would say it because that's where a meaningful relationship is actually found. Like, I want to I ask you, like, when you think to some of the most meaningful relationships that you have in your life, what are some of the characteristics of those meaningful relationships? I would, I, would, I would probably gather with you that some of them are with people that you don't agree on everything or they're difficult people. And that's, that's a really good thing. 
because they're meaningful, because they go deeper than just the surface of what we have in common. They go deep to the foundations. Now, when you're a follower of Jesus and you meet other people that are also followers of Jesus, the really neat thing about it, and I've been in situations in multiple places in the world where I'll meet people and they're followers of Jesus, but our lives are very different. Like, I'm a middle-class white guy who lives in Guelph, right? And you're living in poverty in the slums of Africa. Yet, you know what? I felt so at peace and as family with these folks. Why? Because we both worship the risen Jesus. And it's meaningful because of our deep foundation. And so what he says here. Is to not neglect meeting together, encourage one another, spur one another on. Now, you might ask the question, well, why would I heed this endorsement? Why would I heed this challenge? You maybe have heard the African proverb, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. That's really good, right? And, and I'm learning more and more that life is more like a marathon than it is like a sprint, and it's best going on the journey with one another. I told you uh, about the marathon that I ran at one point. And the marathon was a powerful experience because at like kilometer 32, your body is screaming at you to stop. But then this like little woman on the side, and, you know, I run by her and she's like, go Matthew, you can do it. And I'm like, how do you know my name? And I remember I'm wearing this bib right? Wearing this bib, both for my drool and my, you know, and I'm wearing this bib and identify my number, but I'm wearing this bib and it says Matthew on it. And I wish I could have stopped and hugged that woman or found her afterwards because I'm like, you kept me going for like the next four or five kilometers. Isn't that an incredible example for the life that we live together? Do not neglect meeting together. Encourage one another, spur one another on. If you want to go fast, go alone. And if you want to go far, go together. Another reason we ought to consider this is that if the resurrection of Jesus is true, we will be hanging out for a very long time. <laughs> so we better get used to each other, right? Like if the resurrection of Jesus is true, you and I are going to live eternally. Eternally. And other people that believe in the resurrection of Jesus are also going to live eternally. We're going to be hanging out eternally. And if you don't want to hang out with people eternally, you're not going to want to be in heaven. So we better get used to each other now. No, it's, it's why I think like racism in the Christian community is absolutely ridiculous. Because there are going to be a lot of people of different races in heaven. And if you don't want to hang out with them now, why would you want to hang out with them forever? incredible. So how does the resurrection of Jesus affect our life today? And a second reason is that we can actually have meaningful relationships with one another, where we can challenge each other, not on the basis of, well, I think the Denver Broncos are better than, you know, your team. We can have meaningful relationship around the foundation. And maybe you're here today and someone who is a follower of Jesus invited you, you know, and they're, they're serious about what they believe. They want you to know what they believe so that your relationship with them can grow to the next level. Because it's an amazing thing in deep relationships. Some of the deepest relationships I've had with people are, are other followers of Jesus. Because we have the same convictions. 
and it leads to deep, meaningful relationship. Thirdly, how does the resurrection of Jesus affect our lives today? This is found in in verses 26 to 31, the answer number three. It's the opportunity to actually make a decision about your life and what you're going to believe. The opportunity to make a decision. Hebrews 10, verses 30 to 31. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, what is the, what is, what is the argument that the, the writer is saying here? If Jesus was and is the Son of God, if he did in fact live, die, and rise from the dead, and if what he taught is true, you and I must consider whether or not we believe him because his words have everlasting consequences. Now, that's, that's significant, right? And this is the problem with truth just simply being subjective because what do you do when my truth contradicts or opposes your truth? How can both truths be right? In Christianity, through the resurrection, claims that Jesus has provided a way for you to God. He's the only way. So, you know, me saying that, you've got to decide, do I believe he's the only way or not? Do I believe that he is the only way? Is he the only way to God? And you know what? This is actually one of the things that I love about Christianity, is that it leaves the responsibility for us to say, okay, here are the claims of the Christian faith. It's clearly a bit offensive, but I've got to decide, do I actually believe it or not? It's, it's not simply stating, you know, well, anybody can do anything and, you know, everybody just, uh, you know, pick who you want to believe in. It's no, Jesus Christ, what he has done for you is the only way. So you've got to decide, do I actually believe that or don't I believe it? And the amazing thing about God is that he's not scared of your questions, right? He's not scared of our questions. He wants us to explore And at the same time, he wants to to consider the consequences of our choices. Paul, in writing to the Galatian church, writes this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from his flesh reap corruption. But to the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. It says, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. What's the principle that he's speaking to here? It's that what you believe and how you act has consequences both in this life and in the next life. So make a decision. Is it true or isn't it? And if the claims of Christianity are true, you ought to consider it. You ought to think about it because its claims have everlasting consequences that could mean also everlasting life for you, the amazing gift of God to us through Jesus. You know, my parents, they had this rule when I was younger, which was you can't date until you're 16 or older. Now, I'll be honest and I'll confess I didn't totally listen to them. 
right? There you go, Mary. Who does listen, right? So the the, the, the thing that for me, and the reason that they did this was because they thought, like, what's my son going to be doing pre-16? Like, what's, what's the point of that dating? Like, you're going to reap what you sow, right? This is the thing. So if you want to be responsible, if you want to understand the implications and what can happen in dating relations pre-16, you ought to be cautious. They're trying to help me be responsible. You're a responsible human being. I can't change your mind, but that doesn't mean that I can't challenge your mind here and say, consider what you believe and why you believe it. Where is your hope found? And can it actually, actually follow through? Can your, can your worldview follow through on what it says? Consider Jesus. So as we did with point number one, we skipped for point number two, but we're going to do for point number three. I want you to take your hand, I want you to put it over your chest, and I want you to ask yourself the question. And remember, you don't have to all say this together. You're just speaking between yourself and God. And ask the question, do I believe this? Go ahead. Now you can say this, if so, I am free. You can also say, I am covered. This is good. Well, our last and final reason from this text of why the resurrection of Jesus ought to affect and change our lives today is that it is the basis for our future hope. Read these words with me if you have your Bibles open. Hebrews 10, verses 32 to 34. The author is going to pull out some details from these hearers' lives. He writes, But recall the former days... When after you were enlightened, or he's saying after you came to know the good news of Jesus and trusted it for yourself, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. You endured a hard struggle with some sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Publicly exposed to reproach and reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. You watched your friends go through this, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Are you reading a bit between the lines and also the words as far as what's going on for these people? Their stuff has been taken. They've been beaten. They've been persecuted. We can study history and we, we, we can know that this actually happened. Christians were being murdered and brutalized and suffering and their stuff taken away from them. Now you ask the question, why would they keep believing in Jesus then? Like if it meant, well, you know, I want to keep my stuff. Just deny that you believe in Jesus. They wouldn't do it. This is what he writes from 34 to 37. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Why? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You had a better possession. What's he talking about? He's talking about an eternal possession, an eternal life, something that transcends this life. That you're going to have a better reward 
For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. We are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. You know, Jesus, um, in a very straight way, in one of his teachings says, you know, do not store up for yourselves treasure where moth and rust will destroy or thieves will break in and steal. He's just like being very obvious. Like if you buy something, it's eventually going to rust, you know, or it might get stolen. So he's saying, don't build yourselves treasures of things on this earth. Build your treasure in heaven where moth and rust will not destroy and when thieves, where thieves cannot break in and steal. He's, he's saying it like it is because he's saying, listen, this life that you live on this planet, it will come to an end. For some of us, sooner than others. And what you've done in this life will have some value and meaning in the things that you gather He's saying, I hope that what you do in this life will have everlasting consequences for yourself, both in what you believe and in how you live. Don't store up for yourselves things in this earth where it's all going to be destroyed. It's like, you know, as soon as you buy a vehicle, vehicles are the worst investment, right? I remember when I was younger in high school and I was like, I'm going to buy this great car and I'm going to have it forever, right? That never happened, by the way. Uh, I did end up eventually buying a car, but it wasn't like the dream car, And then as soon as you get a vehicle, you know, you drive it off the lot. If you buy a brand new one, it immediately like depreciates like four or $5,000. Like, you're like, oh, well, there it goes. You know, you should have just tossed it out the window. Like, it's crazy. (laughs) Even, Even for some of us that are excited because we bought Guelph properties when they were, you know, less money. And now they've like, you know, gone up in price. And we're like, yeah, it's pretty good for me. Yeah, but if you sell your house, you got to buy a more expensive one in the city. So it, you know, goes, you know, back and forth in that way. And then you can't take your money with you after you die. What is he saying? You have a basis for future hope. And he's speaking to a situation of intense suffering. You know, it, it, it asks us the question by the implications of how do you respond in suffering? or in persecution, or in marginalization, or when your stuff is stolen? Have you ever had somebody take something from you? It feels incredibly invasive. Like, that was mine. Or somebody break into your house and take things from you? Now, you can obviously be upset. I mean, when Andre and I got married, she bought me a pair of sunglasses, and then, like, within a year, somebody had broken into our car and stolen them, right? And that's, like, sort of, like, an emotional hurt, because it's like, oh, she bought me those for me, like, on my wedding day, and, Oh, it's so sad, right? But like, maybe they put them on me in my coffin. But like after that, they're going to either go to somebody else and eventually break. So what's our basis for future hope? According to the Christian perspective, we have a future hope and rewards in heaven awaiting us. That's awesome. Like we have so much reason that we can live this life with purpose and meaning because we know that it's not, this isn't all that there is, that there's so much more. And that God is awaiting us and that he's preparing a place for us. And what we then, and the implications of that is you and I do not need to fear death. A lot of people are scared of death. What's going to happen? 
you and I don't need to fear death when we trust in Jesus because Jesus came back to life. And he promises us that when we die, we will come back to life as well. That we don't actually need to fear death because we have been given everlasting life. I want you to stop for a moment. The hand thing. I want you to say, I do not need to fear death. I have a great possession awaiting me. Jesus has given me what I cannot do for myself. So in summary, do you live with a confidence in relationship with God? Do you live with and have meaningful relationships with other people? Do you have a life where you feel like you have the opportunity to make decisions? And do you have a hope that will transcend your life now? That beyond this life, I have another one. And it's going to be so much better. You know, we named this Easter Sunday for heaven's sake. It's a statement of trying to declare an opinion for heaven's sake, right? Some, maybe you don't use it. Maybe you could start using it. But for heaven's sake, consider what I have shared this morning. Consider what the writer of Hebrews has presented and consider the impact that it has upon our lives, our lives now because it's such good news. If you've never committed your life to Jesus Christ, we would invite you to do so. Just involves you saying, Jesus, I trust what you have done for me. I want this confidence. I want this assurance. I want to have meaningful relationships. I want to have a hope for tomorrow, regardless of what's going on in my today. Thank you for the opportunity to decide upon this. We're going to spend some time celebrating King Jesus as we sing. We'll have people here at the front that would love to pray with you. And so if you would like to come forward and be prayed for, maybe it's about something that was mentioned in the message, or it's just something in general that you would like to come forward and ask for prayer for, they would love to pray with you. We're so excited that you have joined us today. And we are so incredibly excited and hopeful that one day Jesus will return because his body is not still in the ground And that'll be a glorious day that we look forward to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the message of Easter, for the resurrection of Jesus. And God, some of us have never maybe considered how the resurrection changes the way that we live today, or we thought that the resurrection is just phony. It's a lie made up by absurd people. I pray, God, that we would consider more fully the claims of Christianity and the resurrection and how it changes how we live today. God, maybe for some of us, we haven't been living in light of these changes. Maybe for some of us, we're living in shame and guilt. We're not confident in our relationships with you. So may you remind us that we can be confident in our relationship with you, that meaningful relationships are possible with other people, that we're not alone, that we don't have to be alone. Pray that we would recognize, God, that there is a hope, that there is hope in this life, 
And God, may we be people that take the good news, like we saw in this video, take the good news to others so that they might as well share this future hope. In your son's name we pray. Amen.